Father, um, sometimes your word is really hard to understand. Um, and sometimes your word, it's just hard to understand. It, uh, it frightens us. Um, sometimes it delights us, but sometimes it frightens us. Uh, Father, uh, we ask that you grow in us a great trust in you. We confess before you, Father, that um, your word is always a clear word, that it's our minds and hearts that need to be changed. So, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would fall upon our minds and our hearts and our wills and our souls so that we might hear your word and receive your word and receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And so, with him as our Savior, that as your word enters into our life, that our lives, our day-to-day lives, will bear much fruit that brings you great glory. Father, this is our prayer, and we ask this in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so, uh, one of the things that you can do for me is, uh, in fact, if you start to drift off uh, today because it's dark and you're tired because uh, you're still trying to get over Christmas, um, let me turn this. Uh, one of the things you could do is, uh, is pray for me today and also pray for me for next coming Sunday. Uh, throughout the entire Christmas holidays, I was aware of the fact that I was going to come back in my first Sunday back to teaching on the book of Luke. I was going to have two very hard texts to deal with. Uh, the first one, uh, which we're going to look at in a moment, Luke 16, you might want to sort of get that in your Bibles because we're going to read it in a moment. And if you don't have Bibles, there's always some Bibles up at the front that you can take, and you're welcome to use them. Keep them as a gift uh, from us or, uh, or return them afterwards. This, this week, uh, we're going to deal with what all commentators agree is the hardest parable of all of Jesus' parables to understand. And in fact, uh, most commentators will say it's actually the hardest text to understand in all of the Gospel of Luke. And next week, I get to talk about divorce. <laughs> so I have two hard texts. And so if you could pray for me uh, an extra amount this week, I would really appreciate it. Um, and, uh, and so today we're going to look at, uh, those of you who know your Bibles, we're going to look at the text of the dishonest steward, the dishonest manager. And uh, in some ways, this is a nightmare text for people. I bet if you were to, to, to read this text to the condo dwellers all around us, or to many of the people in your work, maybe even your own family members, it would just bring up uh, many of the fears that people have about religion. Uh, Because it seems as if in this parable that Jesus praises a fellow for, first of all, being a lazy, ineffective worker and then ripping off his boss. And it seems as if, in first reading, it looks as if Jesus is praising this behavior. And as I said, it touches a nerve because for many people in our culture, when they see the Christian faith or any type of religion or spirituality, they, they think that it's just a cover for immoral behavior. I mean, over the past year, we've seen uh, people in ISIS uh, in between their five times of daily prayer playing soccer with the heads of people they've beheaded. Um, Popular fiction and movie, and maybe even our own experience, is familiar with people who are deacons and elders in church on Sunday morning, and the rest of the week they have their slum landlords, they oppress their workers, And this is the deep fear that many in our culture have, is that religion and spirituality 
and therefore Christianity, the, the Christian faith, is just a cover for evil. And so when they see a text like this that appears to have Jesus promoting dishonest business dealings, it's very difficult. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, not even affected by the world in that particular way, it's just a very troubling text. Surely Jesus can't be promoting um, what in other places he would say is evil. So Luke 16, 1 to 15, I'm going to read the text, and uh, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about very, very quickly. If you're unfamiliar with the text, uh, some of you will say, oh, yeah, 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 I remember that Bible text. Others, maybe you're hearing it for the first time. Uh, but here at Church of the Messiah, we try to preach through books of the Bible, and we're going through Luke. So this is the text that we're going to look at today. And here's how it goes. Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to the rich man that the manager was wasting his possessions. And the rich man called the manager and said to the manager, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. In other words, the rich man's announced that the guy's being fired and is giving him whatever, a week, a month, or whatever it is. He's giving him notice, but he's fired. (laughs) Inside, that's what the manager was doing. He was screaming, as we'll see in a moment. Verse 3, and the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. Ah, I have decided what to do, so that even when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, the manager said to the first debtor, How much do you owe my master? And the debtor said, a hundred measures of oil. And the manager said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Now, just sort of pause there for a second. Two things. Um, In the ancient world, uh, the way that these types of debts would have often been recorded is that the person who was in debt, uh, they would write out, if they could write, they would write out in their own hand that they owed so much money. And so what the manager has done is he's come and uh, he's brought the copy because he would keep the copy of what's owed. And, uh, and probably what he's done is he's ripped it up or burned it. And he said, now write 50 instead. And the fellow goes along with it. And just to have a bit of a sense of how much this is, like 100 measures of oil, is it like 100 bucks? Is it like 100 pennies? Like, what is it? Uh, that was approximately... The av- it, it was approximately four years' wages for an average working guy or gal. So that's how much it was. Four years' wages. A lot of money. <laughs> Especially in a culture like that where there was, in a sense, virtually no middle class. Basically, you had fairly well-off people. A very, very tiny sort of middle class. And then the rest of the people were basically uh, lucky if they could live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, just basically getting by. And so four years' wages, that's a lot of money. Okay, so back back to verse 7. Then the manager said to another debtor, and how much do you owe? And the man said, I owe a hundred measures of wheat. And the manager said to him, take your bill and write 80. And just sort of pause here for a second. How much money is this worth? 
it's worth somewhere between 10 to 12 years' wages for an average working guy or gal. 10 to 12 years' wages of an average uh, guy or gal. Almost enough for an average working person to retire for the rest of their life. Maybe it is enough. I, I'm not a, those of you who know about money might, might say, George, actually, if you have 10 times, that's an, I, don't, I don't know. But it's close, right? It's a lot of money. A lot of money. 10 to 12 years' wages for an average working person. So verse 8, the first half of verse 8 is going to be the end of the parable. And then after this, Jesus is going to comment on the parable. And, uh, and so what happens next? Well, we find in verse 8, the master finding out what the, rich, the, the manager, his manager has done. Verse 8, and the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. End of parable. Wow. <laughs> What a parable. And then, um, because the verses were written, added like a thousand years or something like that, more after the, the writing of the New Testament, uh, some monks added it. Um, most scholars would say that the parable ends with the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And now we start to have Jesus' comments on it. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by, un, by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have been not been faith, so if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. In fact, it's, um, ridicule is a good word, but it's, it's just it, they sneered at him. They despised him. They had contempt for him. And their contempt for Jesus comes out in a contemptuous, deriding, sneering, abusive language. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So, what's going on in this text? Um, you know, the, the, some of the lessons that Jesus says all sound pretty good. I mean, some of us will have real concerns about this. I've become very conscious over the last year or two um, that uh, whenever we talk about money, that uh, for Quebecois, I hope I'm pointing in the right direction, for our Quebecois friends, there's this long memory of how the church kept, uh, used Christian teaching to keep them poor. <laughs> and, uh, and so there's hackles raised about any time money is, is raised. And there's some complexities there to Jesus' teaching. But is Jesus contradicting himself? Like at the end, he seems to say that dishonesty isn't good. But in the early part, he seems to be commending the guy for uh, not... <laughs> he seems to be commending the guy for being lazy and ineffective, dealing with his laziness and ineffective by ripping off his boss and, and, and actually conspiring with other people to rip off the boss 
so that when he's fired, uh, he'll be able to live with the guys who, who have conspired to rip off the owner. And, and that's a very odd parable. So what's going on? Um, is this justifying? Um, is, this, is the Bible, in a sense, saying, go thou and do likewise? Well, here's the first thing I'm going to say, and it's going to be a little bit of a surprising direction to maybe talk about, but it's actually a very good point to mention here, and it's a good point to remember all of the time that we read the Bible. And, and here's the first point. Unlike you and me, the living God is not insecure. Unlike you and me, the living God is not insecure. Now, why do I say this? Um, You know, there's a a figure by the name of Feuerbach, whose name I probably haven't pronounced correctly, and uh, he influenced a guy by the name of Marx, and they all influenced people like Freud. And, uh, and they sort of are just capturing some things that some early Greeks said, because, you know, everything's sort of just footnote, footnotes to Aristotle. And, um, and one of the things that they developed was this idea that human beings, like Marx and Feuerbach said, and Freud said that God doesn't exist, that what happens is that we project uh, desires that we want or that our tribe wants, and we project this to create <clears throat> some imaginary being called God. And um, now Christians should accept that this is true, by the way. Christians should accept that this is true, that Feuerbach and Marx and Freud and and early ancient Greeks and modern people who say that, that they're actually saying something which is true about human nature. We do project onto God and create a God in our own image and likeness that reflects our insecurities, our fears, our longings, our yearnings, and stuff like that. The, 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 the place we disagree with, with Freud and all is that, well, that's actually sort of begging the question as to whether or not there actually is such a being called God who does exist. And, what if, there re- and if there is a God that does exist, and we Christians aren't saying anything other than the fact that we're beggars telling one other beggar where to find bread, and we believe... Not that our philosophy is wiser, not that uh, because we have, we're not saying that we have smarter philosophers, smarter mystics, smarter poets, smarter thinkers than anybody else. We're not claiming anything special. All we're saying is that God has spoken and revealed himself and we've received it. But the fundamental insight that we project ourselves is, is very true. And, and so you see, the fact of the matter is, is that every human being is insecure. Some of us are massively, unbelievably, wildly, you know, um, you know, bridezilla type of uh, insecure. Uh, and others, it's, it's, it's maybe deeply buried. But all of us have divided hearts. Uh, all of us, in fact, uh, have diff- very, very different types of desires. Like, it's not unusual, if you're honest with yourself, it's not unusual that over the course of the day, that part of the day you might sort of wish that you were as gentle and wise as St. Francis of Assisi, and, and other times you might wish that you were like Hugh Hefner at the Playboy uh, Mansion. And other points in time, you, you, could, you might believe that uh, you might sort of have as, as a, a virtue that... Uh, that you're just caring for other people the way Mother Teresa cared for people. And then at another point in time in the day, you wish that you were like 
uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger or Bruce Willis. I'm talking like as a guy, okay? And, and that you could just sort of blast people. And, 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 and on and, and, and other times you sort of wish that you were as, as evangelistic as Billy Graham. And the other day, parts of the time, you wish that you were maybe uh, just able to talk and curse and do all sorts of things. And, and this can all happen in the course of a day. It can happen in the course of an hour. But it can definitely happen in the course of a week. That, that we're, we're, we have all these different personas and desires all going on within us in different, different and, and, and we're unstable because we're multiple selves. And, and that always creates within us a fundamental insecurity. And because we're insecure, it means that we have great problems with doctrines like God's grace, doctrines like of judgment, of hell, of human freedom, of providence, all of these things we have problems, not just when we come to this parable, which I'm still going to get to in a moment, I haven't forgotten it, but we have problems with it all the time because as part of our insecurity and our multiple selves, we're very aware of the fact that, that we're very aware, you know, whether it's ourselves or somebody else, or maybe we grew up in a family where the, the dad wasn't able to express being unhappy with his wife, so he took it out on the kids, or the dad wasn't able to, to, to deal with the fact that he couldn't get along with his, his boss and, and so he takes it out on, on the wife. And, or maybe, you know, we had a, a boss and, and, and we can see that she wasn't able to deal with, with her anger or discipline at her, her employees. So she, you know, she took it out maybe on waiters or waitresses or on her own family. And, and we're, we're just used to, to people, and we, and we can see it in our own selves. We're inconsistent and sometimes we're too aggressive and sometimes we're too weak and, and, and passive and, and, and so when we see doctrines in the Bible of God's grace and of, of judgment and of hell and of, of God speaking without realizing it, we project our insecurities and our multiple selves onto the text and we worry that that's what God's like. But, but the Bible wants us to know that God is never, ever, and never has been insecure. And he's never had multiple selves or multiple desires. God is always unchangeably himself. And the, the, the whole doctrine of God's unchangeableness is designed to protect this idea that we don't have to wake up tomorrow to discover that God now says that murder is good. We don't have to worry that tomorrow we will wake up and God has changed his mind on anything. Nothing can change God's mind. Nothing can stop God from being God. God is always himself. He's always good. He's always true. He's always wise. He's always strong. He's always present. He's always active. He always knows all things. He is unchangeably himself. And because he's so secure, he and his word allows images to be used of the Christian life and of himself which are shocking to us. You see, we don't want to use, we don't want to refer to ourselves in ways. I mean, we might sort of play around and, and refer to ourselves in shocking types of ways in areas where we're secure. But in an area where we're not secure about ourselves and, and somebody uses an analogy about us that touches on us, we get very, very uncomfortable with it. But God is always secure. And that's why in the Bible, like, you know, if, if, if we went to the condos of the University of Ottawa and that we were to say that one of the main images that God uses of himself is the Lord of hosts, which means that he's the commander-in-chief of, of, of angel armies, that would make people very uncomfortable. That might not make us uncomfortable. Some of us, it might. 
but others, it would make them very uncomfortable. God compares himself in the Bible sometimes to a drunken soldier, to an unjust, uncaring judge. The the whole means by which Jesus uh, died for us has become just a a commonplace, and, and people wear it as jewelry, but it was unbelievably shocking and offensive to the first generations of people who knew uh, crucifixion as something that they would, if not witness in their lifetime, at least have heard about or know that it happens in parts of the empire. And many of them, it would have been an, a living experience for them that they would have witnessed. And so the first thing is, okay, we're shocked here. Jesus is using an analogy of a whole pile of corrupt people. <laughs> well, we probably wouldn't do that. But God's not insecure. Jesus isn't insecure. He knows who he is. And because he knows who he is, he's able to use things which are shocking, shocking to good people like you and me, who uh, even if we cheat on our taxes, even if sometimes the, the person at the cash gives us too much change and we don't return the difference because they gave us $10 or $20 too much, um, we know that we shouldn't do it. And we'd like to think that we, shouldn't, that we would be the type of people who wouldn't do those things. But this parable might speak very powerfully to other people, and God is not insecure, so he uses sometimes shocking things to catch our attention. And uh, throughout these last two weeks over Christmas, when I would mention to different people I was going to preach on this, they say, yeah, Luke 16, what, 15, the story about the dishonest manager, they go, whoa, that parable. <laughs> Like people who read through the Gospels, that's one of the parables that sticks in their mind because it sticks in their craw, it sticks in our craw. So that's the first thing. It's just a general thing about it all the time, is that we realize that we're reading the text. It's not that the Bible is ever unbalanced, it's we're unbalanced. And we fear that our unbalancedness and insecurity and multiple selves, that that's somehow an evidence in the text, and God is never insecure. He's always himself, he's always God. Praise be to God. We never have to worry that God will stop being loving. Never. Nothing can stop him being loving. Nothing can stop him being love itself. So somebody said, okay, George, well, that's okay. Okay, well, okay. So God uses shocking images. But George, 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 George. This is, a, this is a, a parable about conspiracy, successful, apparently successful conspiracy to defraud. And uh, Jesus does seem to commend the person for it. And um, so what on earth is going on? Uh, okay, well, here's, I'm going to put up the point, and then I'm going to try to explain the point. Andrew, if you could put up the second point. Here's what I think is going on in the text. The Bible presents only two ways two ways for human beings to follow or to live. One way is to strive for self-justification. The other way is by humble faith in Jesus, receive God's free gift of justification. I'll say it again. I think the Bible has lots of different ways that it phrases this, but the Bible is constantly trying to get us to see that there's two ways to live. And in this particular case, and it's going to sort of have a sort of an echo in the text, one way to live uh, is to strive for self-justification, to justify ourselves and justify ourselves before ourselves and before other people. The other way to live 
is to live by humble faith in Jesus and in receiving and receive God's free gift of justification. In other words, that through Jesus, God justifies us. God completely and utterly justifies us. He does it by grace, as a gift, through Jesus. And we can add nothing to that justification. It all comes from God. So some of you might say, (laughs) well, George, I like that message, but I sure don't see it here in the text. Well, here's where, so just sort of bear with me. We have to do a little tiny bit of um, sort of um, inquiry to see why, why I say this. So remember how the parable goes, right? And uh, we all remember how it goes, and, and we remember about the, the, the master commending the fellow. <clears throat> Excuse me. The first thing is that the, um, the commending actually is sort of a funny type of thing. Now, you all know that I, I like, if you come here to the church at all, you know that I like movies that have, like, um, murders in them. I like books that have murders or bank robberies and and all of that type, like really bad people and and all of that. In fact, the book that I just finished reading, um, uh, one of the things in the book was that there's a guy who sort of had his finger in all of the criminal activities that were going on in this large area. And, uh, of course, in that case, there's lots of other criminals who sometimes try to encroach and take over part of the business. And there's several times in the book where the guy says, he's a criminal, by the way, he's also a deacon in the local church, but that's a separate matter. <laughs> he gets himself elected the deacon on the deacon's board of his, of his Baptist church, First Baptist of the, of the area. But he's, he's, running, uh, he's running prostitutes, he has a strip club, he's running drugs, he's running illegal weapons, and uh, does money laundering, and he, you know, you get the idea. This is a really, really bad guy. And... Um, But several times when people try to muscle in or do something else, he says to himself something like these words. He says, my, aren't you an industrious and clever fellow? (laughs) That's what he says. My, aren't you a clever and industrious fellow? And then, of course, he goes and has the guy killed, okay? But... um, um, but that's what he says. He sort of admires the fact that the person who's trying to rip him off is trying to be as good a criminal as he is. And so, uh, you know, I, I would say that this commending of the, of the guy at the end by the rich guy isn't necessarily something, if, if you sort of look at it from that point of view, it's not necessarily something, especially when you then see what Jesus says. But here's why it's all about self-justification. The first thing is if you go back and look at verse 15, um, and, and you have, actually, yeah, verse 15 um, actually, we're going to go back to a context thing. We'll start at verse 1. Look what it says here. He also said to the disciples, also said. In other words, this parable is linked to the parable before it. In fact, what you can imagine doing is that the first parable, if you go back and look at chapter 15, there's three parables, and the one immediately before this is the parable of the prodigal son. And so what you can imagine is that there's this conflict, and there's all these Pharisees over here, Sorry, I'm not picking on this side of the congregation, okay? The the Pharisees are over here, and and Jesus has his disciples behind him, okay? And in chapter 15, it's as if Jesus says these three parables, his his disciples can hear him, says these three parables, concluding with the parable of the prodigal son, and he says it to the Pharisees, the religious people, the spiritual people, the elite people of the culture. 
And then, after he said these three parables, he turns to the disciples. The Pharisees are all still now behind Jesus. They can hear what Jesus says to the disciples. And Jesus tells them this disciple, of the dishonest manager. And then after he tells them the parable of the dishonest manager, he goes on and tells them about, uh, which we'll look at in a moment, about, you know, people, um, you know, if you're, if you're dishonest in little, you'll be dishonest in much. If you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. You can't serve God and mammon. And as he finishes that, what he hears behind him is the Pharisees, the religious and the spiritual, the elite, the cultural elite, the well-educated, the powerful. They sneer at Jesus. They ridicule him. They deride him for everything he said. And Jesus turns now with his back to his disciples and looks at the Pharisees and says in verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Why were these people ridiculing Jesus for the prodigal son and the dishonest manager? Jesus says that what led them to ridicule was because they believed in self-justification and the worship of money. And he said, anything, all self-justification is an attempt to exalt yourself, and God finds it an abomination. So the two parables are linked. And actually, if you think about it, I don't know how well you, know, you folks know the parable of the prodigal son. When you go home today, maybe you can read it again. And if you read the prodigal son and you read the story of the dishonest manager, and you go from one parable to another, you'll be surprised at the number of, of similarities. In both cases, uh, there's a, a man who's using somebody else's wealth and desires somebody else's wealth. In both cases, there's waste of the wealth. In both cases, there's sort of not only the desire for the wealth, but the wasting of the wealth. And in both cases, after the wealth has been wasted, there is either the threat or the reality of being reduced to a lower working class status. And in both cases, there is the worry that once the wealth is gone, you're going to be friendless. In both cases, in both stories, that's the same thing. And in both stories, the characters have a brainwave. They go, oh, I got it. Oh, I got it. In both stories, the prodigal son, when he's feeding the, the corn husks to the, 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 not the corn husks, he's just feeding the pods to the pigs. And he's there, he says, oh, I got it. The dishonest manager, when he knows he's about to be fired, going to be reduced to even lower than digging ditches and begging, he goes, oh, I got it. And in both cases, they're, I got it. They have a strategy to move forward. In both stories, both stories, very similar structure. And, um, but you see, in the first story, those of you, if you go back and listen to my sermon on it, I think it was the second Sunday in December, you'll see that in the first story, the prodigal God, it's really a the prodigal son, it's really a story about God. And, um, and it's a story that God sees the son long before the son sees. So the, the son, in humility, decides his exit strategy is, you know what, I'm never going to have any money anymore, but what I really need is to be with my father. 
I'd rather be home with my father and poor than anything else. And so remember, he prepares a speech. He says, uh, you know, I've been very bad. I've wasted your money. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you at least let me live at your house and work as a servant? And that's his strategy. And the story is that as he goes, that the story is not fundamentally about his strategy, although the strategy is very, very important. But the father who sees the son long before the son sees the father, that the father crosses the distance between himself and the son and goes and embraces the son and welcomes the son. And the son only says part of his little prepared speech before the father saying, bring my, bring the best robe, which is his own robe and cover this guy and let's have a party because my son who is dead is alive again. And in the second story of the dishonest manager, he says, you know what? (laughs) How can there be an existence apart from money? And how can I possibly have an existence apart from being seen as really being important? How can there be any life worth living if I don't have money and I'm not important? So I'm going to find some criminals. And I'm going to hope that the the parable, by the way, is incomplete. The parable doesn't say whether at the end of this, in the next step, uh, the, the, the rich man says, hmm, aren't you a clever fellow? Okay, kill him. <laughs> okay, my servants go out, whack him, you know, kneecap him. You have no idea whether the, the criminals are going to actually accept the guy. The, the, the parable is incomplete because it's not a moralistic thing. It's not about moralism and principles. It's about the fact that God looks at our heart. And these two parables reveal radically different understandings of the human heart in the context of the living God. In the prodigal son, he humbly sets aside any type of self-justification. And to his huge surprise and to our surprise, we discover that God justifies and accepts the son. In the last story, the manager only desires to continue to have money be the center of his life and seek his own self-justification two radically different approaches and stories to life. In the first story, part of what is going on is all we see is that the father justifies the son, and we don't realize that the the parable is preparing us. Remember, those of you who have been here other weeks, that from chapter 9 on, every single thing that happens in the Gospel of Luke is Jesus regularly, every chapter and a half or two chapters, says to his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. He keeps reminding people. And when we read the gospel, we have to remember that everything that's said is all in the context of Jesus going to Jerusalem to die. And so at the time of the prodigal son, we don't understand that how the the son will be justified is is not merely by some degree of of declaration by the father, but that the that, the, this, that ultimately my justification and yours comes by Jesus' finished work upon the cross. That it will be the death of Jesus upon the cross that ultimately justifies you and me. Me accepting his finished work is what justifies me. We don't know that. I mean, we know it because we, we know the story, but when you're reading the story, it's just preparing you for this. So, 
the Bible is setting before us two different ways. The, one way is to strive for self-justification or by humble faith in Jesus receive God's free gift of justification. Well, some of you are saying, well, what about the money aspect? And, and what about how does it all end with verse 9 and, and all of that other stuff? And, and is, is the Bible now, is Jesus saying that money is like dirty? Like, George, isn't that sort of what those priests said to the Quebecois for many, many generations? Or at least, I mean, whether it's true or not, I, I don't know. Just in, 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 for many people, when they think about it, that's what they believe happened. I'm not saying it did. I just, it's what they believe happened. That, um, I'm not saying that they're wrong either. I, I don't know enough about Quebecois history to know whether it's a fair depiction. But are, is, this just a, is this why the, 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 the priests in the, in the church in Quebec, they would tell people that money is dirty, and so they shouldn't seek to make money, and they shouldn't seek promotions and ambitions, and that allowed all these Anglican and Baptist and United Church Anglophones to get all the rich positions. Is that... I, George is still a bit confused. Well, we're going to look at it, but the first thing we have to understand is, is something about what it means to be justified by Jesus. When we put our, when we, in repentance, we turn to Jesus and we say, Father, I'm, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son or your daughter. I cannot justify myself. I, I cannot exalt myself. That whole project comes to an end. All I can do is just hope and trust that what your son has done for us on the cross, that you will justify me in him, that you will do this by grace, out of love and mercy for me. You know, Father, how divided my heart is. You know that one moment I think I, I want to be like Billy Graham, the next minute I want to be like Bruce Willis. You, you know that on, on, one, on one moment I want to be faithful, the next moment I want to be like Hugh Hefner. You know that you know all those, you know these terrible, you know how... Father, you know everything going on inside of me. I cannot justify myself. I, all I can do is come to you for mercy and trust that you will justify me and have justified me through what Jesus has done for me on the cross. That you will not weigh my merits. You will only pardon my offenses and I come to you. I come to you. And what happens after we're justified? Well, that's what we have to understand, that's what Jesus is talking about in the text. It's what happens in verses 9 and 10 and 11 and 12 and 13. It's, I put it this way. When I am justified by God, my life begins to bear fruit for his glory. When we really have been justified by God, our lives start to bear fruit for his glory. So let's look at the text and see how it, uh, how it works itself out a little bit. And then we'll talk just in closing a little bit. How's my time? We'll talk in closing just a tiny little bit about money. I've, I've gone on a long time. Uh, hopefully I haven't lost you. Look at verse, um, so verse uh, 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. It's the end of the parable. Now Jesus begins to comment. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And... Um, the word shrewd there, um, in the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Old Testament was early on, before Jesus' time, translated into Greek. And um, so um, often, in fact, they, many people believe that most of the time when the apostles were reading the Bible, they were reading the Greek version of the Bible most of the time. And, um, and the word in Genesis chapter 3, if you know that story about the serpent, and the word in Greek, 
that they use to translate how the serpent is is the same word that's used here. In other words, remember when it says about the serpent that the serpent was more subtle than other creatures, more shrewd than other creatures? That's the word that's used here. It's not a compliment to be said that you're like the serpent in the Garden of Eden. (laughs) That's not something that you should say, whoa, boy, that's off my bucket list. I've always desired to be compared to the serpent in the Garden of Eden who leads all of mankind astray. Uh, Jesus is commenting upon the fact that you're dealing with a story here that's all about people who are all consumed with money. The rich man and the manager and the creditors, they're all consumed with money. Money is their God. But he's going to make a shocking thing. He's going to say the fact that the fact of the matter is, is that even though these people are all consumed with money, that's all that consumes them. Yet, you know what? At least they pursue this with diligence. So how should we then live? If, if even thieves and criminals pursue their end with diligence, does it mean that when you have received the justification that comes from me, that you don't have to pursue anything? If thieves understand that in, they should pursue money, now that I have justified you, shouldn't you pursue Something. What should you pursue? Verse 9, he begins to talk about it. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. I'll talk about that in a moment. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And the word fails there is actually, it's an interesting word. It's a good word. Um, But the original word in the original language is the word that we get the word eclipse from. In other words, when money is eclipsed, you. Remember, he's talking to the disciples. Money, you live in a world that, where money exists, but you know what? One day, money will be eclipsed for you. So he said, you know, using the thing as the, the, the guy in the, in the parable was hoping that by his criminal activity he would make friends. And so what Jesus is saying is eternal dwellings, um, the, the word for dwelling there, which is a good word, it's the same word used for tabernacle. And it's a place where God meets with you. And he said, you know, when you're justified by my, when you're justified by what I've done for you on the cross, where's your destination now? You're going home. And home is to be with God, to live in the new heaven and the new earth. That's what my justification does for you. That's your new destination. You know, you sojourn in Canada, but your true home is heaven. And that's where you're going. And if that's where you're going, use, and here Jesus takes the the argument from other people. You know, like a lot of times religious and spiritual people will say, oh, we don't want to talk about money. Money is unclean. It's dirty. You know, it's, it's worldly. It's carnal. It's unimportant. You can't take it with you. And, and there's all this talk of sort of despising money, but inwardly they, they, we still like it and we like to have more of it. And, and we get upset and we go back to the cashier if she didn't give us enough change or he didn't give us enough change because, you know, we can talk about money being unclean and, and, and carnal and unspiritual and unworthy and non-eternal and all that, but we live in a world with money still has a hold on us. And Jesus is saying, okay, folks, I, you're going to be justified by what I've done for you on the cross. You're going to receive that. But once you're justified by me, you're going to bear fruit. And part of how you're going to bear fruit is you're now going to start to understand that... You're going 
to this future, and this future is guaranteed. So use your worldly resources in such a way that fits with your destination. The dishonest manager, he had no destination other than money. He had no destination other than being important. He didn't really care ultimately about any particular person. He didn't care which one of these creditors took him in because he ultimately didn't care about people. All he cared about was himself, and he cared about money. That's what he cared about. And that was his destination, and he pursued that diligently. And Jesus said, if these guys can pursue these things diligently, you're going to be justified by me when you put your faith and trust in me. Now you're going to live with God. And if that's your destination, use the resources that you have in such a way that fits with where you're going. And and then he goes on and he talks about it. One who is faithful. You know, now that, okay, well, okay, Jesus, how do do I do that? Like, what do I do? If that's my destination, like, what what do I have to understand? You know? And and Jesus says, well, one who is faithful, verse 10, in, in a very little is also faithful in much. Uh, you know, money is, in a sense, a very little thing. It's going to be eclipsed. But, you know, if you're not faithful in these little, tiny little things, how are you going to be faithful in big things? Like, who's going to believe you? Like, part of the fruit that's going to come from justification is you're going to have a desire built up within you that you need to, to develop habits around to desire to be faithful even in little things. Why? Because one and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And what else does Jesus say? If then, if, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, he's taking their language from them, who will entrust you to the true riches, the riches that eclipse money? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, because, you know, at the end of the day, the Bible is going to teach that we're all just managers of resources. We don't really own anything. God puts things under our care But, you know, when we die, it all goes back in the box, goes to somebody else, and ultimately it's God's. (laughs) And you have to understand, I have to understand, that the money's ultimately not my money, it's God's money. It's not my resources, it's God's resources. I didn't do anything to create my DNA. And if my DNA means I have a certain type of IQ and a certain type of health, and, and God has blessed me with, you know, a wife and kids and living in Ottawa, and he's given me these resources, gosh, I was born in this country I don't know why God had me born here rather than in, you know, Sri Lanka or, or in, this, you know, in slums of Shanghai. I didn't do anything to accomplish that. And God has given me some resources. He's given you maybe lesser resources. Some of you is giving more resources. But whatever resources that God has put, put in your control, he's given them to you to, to, to manage them for him. He's given you to, them to manage for him. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who are lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. They sneered at him. They despised him. Why? You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Two final points, just to try to bring it home. The first one is this. Verse 4, Jesus asks me, will I manage money in service of money, or will I manage money in service of the living God? Will I manage money in service of money, or will I manage money in service of the living God? 
See, the issue is we all live in a world where money exists, right? We all live in a world like that. And we can't just pretend that it's unspiritual so we don't have to bother with it because all that does is it just allows greed and envy and to fester within us and it allows us to be ungenerous and, 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 and hoarding types of spirits just to grow within us. To, to, to start to think, when we think that it's just underneath us and beneath us, it just allows us to exalt ourselves. And Jesus says, listen, the issue is that in the throne of your heart, who's on the throne of your heart? And on the throne of your heart, the center of who you are, for many of us, it's myself and money and other idols as well. It might be the idols of tribe or of nation or of job or career or whatever it is. But there's a host of idols sitting on the throne of our heart. And the throne of our heart should only have one person sitting on it, and that should be the living God. It should be Jesus, who's died to redeem us and to restore us to that which we were created for. Because we were created to have God at the throne of our hearts. Our hearts are restless till they rest in him. And Jesus says you can end up serving money, managing money, but really what you're doing, you're managing money because you worship money, which means that money manages you. And money will fail. One second after death, Bill Gates and the poorest person in Ottawa, one second after they both die, if they die at the same time, one second after death, they have the same financial resources. So the issue isn't, do you manage money? The issue is, who are you managing money for? Money and self or the living God? One final thing. Um, Jesus calls me to manage the resources under my care for the glory of the living God. Jesus calls me to manage the resources under my care for the the glory of the living God. You see, that's why there's nothing wrong. If, if God has granted you the ability to start a business, start a business. Bless the city. You know, one of the ways that we bless the city, that we help the poor, is, is by starting businesses that create employment for people. And, and, and you know, and, and, you know, and, 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 you know if, he, if he's giving you some type of a vision to start a dance troupe or something like that, those are some you know, resources that you have or to paint beautiful pictures or to, to make films or just to, you know, to, you, God calls you into marriage and, and maybe you end up deciding that you're going to have a little bit less money so one of you can stay home to care for the kids that hopefully God will bless you with. And, and, and you know, the thing is, is that these are all resources that God has put under your care. And you're to manage them, not thinking about how can I maximize money in service of money, but you'd be wise and, and, and work hard and, and seek promotions. If God has granted you that ability to seek promotions and, 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 and manage those resources, but you manage them not to enthrone yourself and not to enthrone money, but you manage them for the glory of God. And that's why you see that as part of that, that just as well as you manage the resources and maybe cause the resources to thrive and grow, but at the same time, because you're not worshiping money, that's, that's why you give money to the poor and why you give money to the church. It's why the spiritual discipline of tithing is so important for a Christian that there's at least a bit of a benchmark in the Bible put about, okay, well, how, how is it that I show that I'm going to dethrone money as the, 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 the thing which drives my managing of money? Well, one of the ways you do it is you give money away. Oh, no, I'd, I'd rather have a spiritual thing. Like, I'd rather have a spiritual experience in church. And God says, no, 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 you can't dethrone money in your life unless you give money away. And, I, you know, you, I, you can trust me, I'm going to provide for you, but you've got to give money away. 
And we're suggesting 10. Some people, like Mother Teresa, she had to give away everything. Some of us, maybe God's going to call us that, that, that we have to give away everything. Maybe it's more than 10%, but that's how we dethrone money in our lives. That's, that's how we manage money in such a way that we show that we're living to the glory of God. Tithing is such an important spiritual discipline connected to this text to help us to understand how to live. But build your business. Get the promotions. Look, after, look out for interest rates. You know, if you have credit card debt, you know, talk to somebody who can help you put all that under a line of credit with a lower interest, you know, because it's not a particular sign of being very spiritual to give lots of money to credit card companies when you can, you know, that money can be kept for yourself. You can give it to the poor. You can, you can give it to the church. Like, there's lots of better uses for that money, but manage your money. Manage your resources. Use your energy. Use your mind. Get the degrees. Get the promotion. Manage your resources, but don't do it for the exaltation of yourself. Don't do it to justify yourself in the eyes of men. Don't do it to prove to your parents or your teacher or your coach that they were wrong for you. You have the opportunity. I have the opportunity to be justified by the finished work of Jesus upon the cross so that at the end of our life when we die, that which we can begin to know now, we will hear at the end where God, the creator, the living God says to me, George, fill in your name. I am so glad you've come to see me and be with me face to face. I've been looking forward to this. Come, I welcome you into my kingdom. There's no greater justification than that which comes from God. So live for his glory. Receive that which he gives. He'll give you it in such a way that you start to bear fruit. Live for his glory. Please stand. Bow our heads in prayer. Dear God, Please deliver me from self-justification. Please deliver our church from self-justification. Please deliver every person who is here from striving for self-justification. Deliver us, Father, from all of our striving to exalt ourselves. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he did for us on the cross. Thank you that you know that he knew how imperfect and how fickle and insecure we are, and still you loved us, still you love us, still Jesus died on the cross for us. Thank you, Father, that he knows us so perfectly, and yet he died for us. Thank you, Father, that in him, when we receive him, that we are justified in him, that he justifies us, that you justifies us. Father, help us to be gripped with this message of the gospel and what Jesus does for us on the cross. Help us, Father, to be gripped by the justification that comes from you. And help us, Father, to so live with our home in heaven, bearing fruit for your glory. Help us to manage our resources well in a way that we can contribute to the furtherance of your kingdom and bring you glory. It's your resources. It's your money. I surrender all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.